I've been the interim children's pastor for the last seven months and have really enjoyed this unexpected gift to be able to hang out with a lot of little kids a lot of the time. And if you hang out with children long enough, you're going to observe in and perhaps referee a squabble between a couple of kids. Squabbles aren't limited to kids. We squabble too, but we're much more mature and professional about it. But oftentimes, a a child, as you're sorting this all out, will say, yeah, well, he deserved it. Right? Have we heard that? Yeah. And many times they're right. They deserve something. And we in our lives experience things that we deserve. We experience things we don't deserve. When I was five years old, I was having dinner with my family in our dining room. And from our dining room, you could see out through the front window into the driveway. And as we're eating, a police car pulls into the driveway. My, wa- my mom, thinking this is very funny, turned to me and said, Isaac, they're here for you. <laughs> Little did my mom know they were there for me. <laughs> my parents learned that evening that I had been involved with a group of neighborhood boys who had broken the window out of an abandoned house in our neighborhood. The police officer came inside, and he read me my rights. He felt very awkward. Obviously, I felt awkward. It wasn't a happy moment. You have the right to me, so I, you know, anything you say, you can. <clears throat> and as the evening went on, we talked about retribution and what that meant. I deserved that visit from the Monmouth Police Department that morning. We also experienced things we don't deserve. When I was in college, a junior, I had an ethics class, massive project at the end of the semester, worked really hard, was very proud of this huge assignment. It was so many pages long. I won't tell you how many pages because it's really not that impressive. But I worked really hard, was so proud of it, turned it in. I knew this is A quality work. And then I turned to work on another course, the end of the semester project. And as I began to work on this marriage and family paper, I realized the work I just did on this ethics paper, boy, I could turn that in as a marriage and family paper. So I'm I'm an honest fellow. And I went to my marriage and family teacher, professor, and said, can this work that I just did in my ethics class be reformatted and submitted to you and count for the work in the marriage and family class? She said, sure. I did not deserve that. And I will mention, I didn't ask my ethics teacher about the ethical implications of my work, (laughs) but something I didn't deserve. And when we talk about gifts from God that we don't deserve, we use this word grace. Grace. And there's a lot of different facets, angles that we could talk about grace, a lot of things that we could explore this morning for instance, the, the uh, grace of creation. There's no right built into the universe that says any of us has to exist or there has to be life. But God, by his grace, undeservedly so, gave us this gift of life. We could talk a long time about that. 
We could, we could talk about the fact that it's grace that any of us experience any sort of happiness or joy or success or good feeling or laughter at all. It is a grace that Christian, non-Christian alike, we experience this. Theologians call that passive grace. We all experience that at some point. This morning, I want to talk about redemptive grace. God embraces our past and uses it to complete his design for our lives. God embraces our past and uses it to complete his design for our lives. Well, as we begin to unpack that, let's pray and then we'll get right into it. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, which when we open it, speaks to us, encourages us, challenges us. As we study this morning, as we are with you and with each other, I pray that you would do amazing things by your grace. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, we all say, amen. Well, Peter is a picture of redemptive grace. Peter, character in the Bible that many of us can relate to. And there's three things about Peter that I want to unpack this morning because he's a great picture of redemptive grace. Today we'll discover that Jesus embraces Peter, his past, his failings and his strugglings and uses it to complete his design for Peter's life. Three things. First of all, Peter thinks he's got stuff all figured out. The second thing that we'll discover is Peter is impulsive. Many of us can relate to that. And third, Peter makes promises that he can't keep. But in spite of those things, God uses those things to complete his design for Peter's life. And I got a feeling he wants to do the same thing with every single person in this room. So Peter, first of all, Peter thinks he's got stuff all figured out. Peter was a, lived in a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. And being raised in this area at this time he would have learned about previous generations and how the Jews had uprisings trying to overthrow the Roman government. And so for Peter, many of the heroes he would have grown up learning about, hearing about, becoming excited about, would have been these guys who tried to overthrow the government. Peter would have also grown up hearing the Old Testament, hearing about this messianic figure in Daniel and other passages that would come and overthrow the political systems of the day that would violently do so and restore Israel to its rightful place. So Peter grew up in a culture that conditioned him to think a certain way about God and think a certain way about how God would use him potentially. And so then this guy Jesus comes along. And Jesus says, follow me. And Peter has this expectation. This could be the dude all those Roman soldiers that have been hanging out, causing us grief, invading our territory, keeping us from being in our rightful place. He's going to take it to them. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll sign up for that. Peter's a pretty excitable guy. This is manly man stuff. I'm going to be a hero. This is awesome. I can do that. Well, Peter's information wasn't complete. And we get an insider's look into a conversation in the book of Matthew, in chapter 16, that, talks to us, that tells us about this. Peter said, or Jesus asked his disciples, 
who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he got it right. Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. So Peter got it right. And then Jesus starts talking about the fact that I'm going to go die. I'm going to be crucified at the hands of the authorities. Peter thought he had it all figured out. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. We're going to. We're going to overcome the Roman government here. We've got some tasks to do. If you die, we can't do those things. Oh, we've got some stuff to figure out. We've got some stuff to do. Come on, this is not right. I have everything figured out. And Jesus issues him a pretty strong rebuke. Matthew 16, 23. He turned, as Peter was saying this, and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. Peter thought Jesus would be this political overthrower, and now he's realizing, I maybe don't have stuff figured out. Well, sometimes I approach God this way. I think I have things all figured out. My culture... My upbringing, my circumstances condition me to think in a certain way about God, about Jesus. I think God should make me comfortable and that he should make me happy and that he should fix all of my little problems. It's kind of like the American dream. We're cultured to kind of think that this is what God's main objective is for us. And so we approach God this way. Well, let me give you an example. I'm a pretty big guy, 6'4", 250-ish. And sometimes I get on an airplane. And there's not much room on an airplane. You might have been on one. There's not much room. Now, there's a lot of room in those big recliner seats, those lazy boys they install at the front and they charge an arm and leg for it. I can't afford those. And so if I'm traveling with my wife, no problem. A couple things. She'll give me the aisle seat. Awesome. And it's a great excuse to snuggle, Right? So we're snuggling on the airplane. But if I'm not traveling with my wife, I try to work my pastor magic at the front counter and try to get an exit row. That's, you know, the ultimate for me. Get an exit row. And I've been successful. I had a knee injury a few years ago. That was a great excuse. You know, great line. You know, I've got this knee injury and I could really use an exit row and that would be awesome. Well, on one particular flight, flying from Portland all the way to Europe, 10 hours, Try to work my pastor magic. Try to get the exit row. That would be awesome. No exit row. But, sir, we can upgrade you to an aisle seat. Oh, aisle seat. Awesome. That's great. I'll put my legs out in the row. You know, the flight attendant will have to ask me to move every so often. But that's, that's better. Awesome. Aisle seat. I'll go with that. So I get on the plane. And I sit down on my aisle seat. And no one sits in the seat next to me. And I'm looking around and feeling pretty good. Aisle seat is going to become aisle seats. And I'm pretty excited about that. Until the other biggest guy on the plane boards the plane. And he looks around for a seat. And I'm not being obvious that there is a seat next to me. But eventually he realizes this is his seat. And he wedges in next to me. 
I was really upset because you know the rest of the story. Ten hours of snuggling. <laughs> that armrest thing, you need a sledgehammer to get it between his. And I was, I was frustrated. Why? Because I've been, in my culture, I've been taught I deserve to be comfortable. I deserve to, it's my right to be comfortable. And if I'm not, doggone it, somebody fix it. Well, then I take that to my relationship with Jesus. And I go through the painful things in my life. Jesus, fix it. Get me, get me out of this. I, I don't like this. I shouldn't have to be in this pain. I don't want to do this. And Jesus rebukes me. Isaac, you have in, thing, you have in mind the things of men but I'd like you to have in mind the things of God. There is a reason for this season in your life. Now, it is so refreshing that we serve a God that does have everything all figured out. God sees the whole of history as on a table in front of him, beginning to end, and he knew the exact and precise right moment to send his son Jesus to live the perfect life, to die the death that we could not die, to pay the price that none of us could pay so that we might live now and forevermore in eternity with him forgiven. He has everything all figured out. This is the God that we serve. But most of us are like Peter. We think we have everything all figured out. Well, the second thing about Peter. Peter was impulsive. Now, Peter loved Jesus, and he really meant to do well. But on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter gets himself into trouble again. Now, I really like Peter because he, he gives us some of the most amusing stories in the New Testament. Jesus is being arrested, and there's a lot of people there. There's a whole commotion, and the high priest's servant is there, and as Jesus is being arrested, Peter pulls out a sword, impulsively cuts the ear off of the high priest's servant. <laughs> Let's be honest. This must have been a really awkward moment. <laughs> What's... What's Peter supposed to say? Sorry about the ear. I was going for your head. <laughs> yeah, your ear. Yeah, I mean, it's on the ground. And I mean, it, it must have been just one of those moments where everybody's. <sighs> Jesus is so gracious. He, you know, he heals the ear. He cares for, for Peter. Peter was impulsive. We react pretty impulsively to the difficult situations in life, don't we? Well, we have some pretty cool impulses that help us to survive. How many of us, we put our hand on the burner of a stove, we kind of, it's on, by the way, and we kind of sit back and ask the Lord for discernment and wisdom Lord, what is thy will? Should I pull my hand off or not? No, yeah, we don't do that. Actually, we pull our hand away even before we feel the pain. 
because of something called a reflex arc. Pain sensors are going to your brain, there's trouble, and your body intercepts it before it gets to your brain and sends back little commands to your muscles to move your hand before you even know it's in pain. That's why you don't feel the pain until your hand's up here. Have you ever noticed that? You're like, and you don't feel the pain until it's already up there. Your reflex arc. Amazing. God's creation. That's cool. But sometimes life conditions us to behave, respond, react like a reflex arc. Because of negative situations in our past, because of families that are broken, and by the way, no family is perfect. Because of things that we have done, we begin to react impulsively out of defense. And so we react with words and actions and make decisions on the fly impulsively. And we get ourselves in a lot of trouble. We hurt a lot of other people because of our reactionary nature. Thinking that we're preserving ourselves but in actuality, making things worse. Peter, thinking, Jesus, I'm going to save you, and we're really going to conquer this world. Don't worry, I'll take it into my hands. I've got it all figured out. And we do the same thing in our relationships, in our world, in our families. We behave impulsively. In essence, we quickly forget that God never has an emergency. God never has an emergency. He doesn't have 911 programmed into his cell phone so that, oh gosh, when I'm on the scramble, I can... He never has an emergency. Now, some of us, because of the conditioning of life, have learned a distorted picture of God. And you might think or believe or assume that God is impulsive too and reactionary. Maybe you were raised in a household where any time someone did something wrong, it was, stop it. And there was a sense of always being in trouble. And so that transfers into how you view God and you, you feel like you're always in trouble with him. But God, the Bible teaches us, is patient, slow to anger, abounding in love, offering forgiveness, loving unconditionally. And so it is so great to serve a God that is not impulsive, that is not reactionary, that is not mean looking for ways to smash us, get us, get back at us. Peter, much like us, was impulsive. A third thing, Peter makes promises he can't keep. Peter makes promises he can't keep. Peter eventually came to accepting the fact that Jesus was going to have to die. And he promises, okay, Jesus, sign me up. I'll never leave you. This is where we're going. We'll do it together. And we read this, and you can read it on the screen. John 13, 36 through 38. Simon Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And we know the rest of the story. Peter denied 
Jesus three times. Peter made promises, but then he could not keep his promises. And for Peter and Jesus, their relationship, this was not like good buddies that hang out every once in a while and, and uh, Jesus got booked, he's downtown, and, uh, maybe I'll call him later and better disassociate for a little bit. Jesus was Peter's mentor, his rabbi. Peter was Jesus' disciple. And in this culture, that relationship was full of sacred commitments, sacred vows, and a bonding to one another, a, a commitment to go through thick and thin. And then at Jesus' greatest point of need, when he needed a friend, when, as he's being killed, he's being hung out, he's being totally... He's in pain and he's being separated from God and all these sorts of things are happening to Jesus. Peter is nowhere to be found because he can't keep his promises. Some of you this morning can relate to Peter. You haven't kept your promises. For some, you committed to another person the sacred vows of marriage. And you've broken your promises. And perhaps now there's been divorce, there's separation, there's shame, there's pain, there's all sorts of realizing I can never be healed from this, I can never be the same, I can never... You must feel like Peter must have felt disowning Jesus. Or perhaps you yourself... You made sacred, sacred, deep commitments to follow Jesus. Say, yes, sign me up. I want to be your disciple. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. Thank you for forgiveness. And then as life has gone away, you've taken steps away from him. Maybe in the least, it's become an apathetic relationship. But maybe at the greatest, it's become something where you've rejected God, rejected your faith. And you can understand this thing of we can't keep our promises. We are much like Peter. Jesus never breaks his promises. Jesus loves us with a covenant love. This means a love that is not contingent upon our actions, our obedience, or how good we can be. He loves us with an everlasting love. He will keep loving and keep loving and keep loving and keep loving, no matter how much we turn our backs, no matter how much we sin, no matter how much we disown him, disdain him. He will keep on loving us. He is faithful when we are faithless. He is present when we are absent. Jesus never breaks his promises and it is so good to serve a god who does not break his promises so what does jesus do with all of this brokenness what does he do with all of this thinking that we know it all our arrogance our impulsive reactionary decisions which affect us and other people in horrible ways and with the promises that we couldn't keep. He takes all of these scraps that we have to offer and he builds a beautiful picture of redemptive grace. Embraces our past and uses it to complete his design 
in our lives. And we get a picture of that. Another insider's look. Peter's rejected Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. Then he rose from the grave. And now Peter's reunited with Jesus and they're hanging out. Jesus challenges Peter. Three times he challenges Peter's love for him at the end of John 21. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I I love you. Peter, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the third time, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him, Again, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. We're going to unpack this a little bit. Jesus' redemptive grace here for Peter. What a moment. Peter hanging his head in shame, knowing that he's messed up, knowing he's made a fool of himself, knowing he abandoned Jesus and Jesus' greatest point of need. And then Jesus taking Peter to a point of of grace. Jesus didn't respond to Peter here with a, with a simple pat on the back, says, it's all right, bro, we're cool. But instead, he responds with a statement of purpose. When Jesus challenges Peter to feed my sheep, and then he says, I tell you the truth, when you're younger, you went where you wanted to go and you dressed yourself like you wanted. But when you're older, you will go where others want you to go, where you don't want to go, and you will stretch out your hands. He was giving him the picture of Peter's ultimate death. And history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. And the reason he was crucified upside down is because he didn't want to be crucified right side up because he felt that he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was. So Peter was crucified because he was a martyr. Peter was crucified because he had been used so much in the church that the Roman authorities said no more and they crucified him. See, Jesus' statement to Peter is one of purpose. He's saying, Peter, all of these things that you have to offer, now I will do amazing things. And we know the rest of the story with Peter. Peter was the one in Acts chapter 2 who preached the first sermon and 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus in that story. We know that Peter was the one, was one of the ones whose signs and miracles and wonders were done through by the power of the Holy Spirit as they trusted him and as he walked in his redemptive story. We know, history tells us, that Peter is one of the most famous male names of all time. We know that Peter was instrumental in taking the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. We know that Peter has huge monuments, which we call cathedrals, that are named after him. We know the rest of the story. Jesus took his brokenness, his shame, his pain, and built it into something beautiful, redemptive grace. That is good news. 
And that is exactly what Jesus is in the business of doing with each person who will respond to him, building a story of redemptive grace, embracing what we bring, our past, and using it to complete his design for our lives. Well, let me give you an example from someone here among us. A story of amazing, redemptive grace. I've changed the name for privacy. We'll call her Susan. Susan, having lived a hellish childhood, became pregnant at age 17. She married the father. They together had another child. Even though they went to church and tried to do right, within a few years, she cheated on her husband, had an abortion. The marriage ended in a brutal, ugly divorce. And she resigned herself to a life of the bars, bar hopping, alcoholism. On one night, she was driving under the influence, hit someone else in their vehicle, severely injured that person. Horrible story, tragedy, brokenness all over the place. What does she have to offer? Last spring, in a service here at Evergreen, Susan gave her life to Jesus. After 20 years of making decisions that spat in the face of Jesus, she accepted his grace. Since that day, she's, make, she's been making decisions every single day to further her relationship with him and to learn to live in the way that he wants her to. And this last fall, she was baptized. I got a chance to sit down and ask her about her story and to learn about her past. And as I asked her about her past, I realized she's getting this thing of redemptive grace. This is what she said. She said, I would not be where I am today in my relationship with God if I hadn't gone through all that tribulation. I am very grateful. My experience gives me eyes that I would have never had otherwise. A picture of redemptive grace. See, Susan is beginning to understand what Peter understood. That God takes the brokenness that we have to offer and paints something beautiful. Who knows the people that God will bring into Susan's path? She will be able to impact people that I never could. She will be able to empathize and sympathize with other hurting, broken people that I never could. And as she and I continued to talk about this amazing thing that God had done, she said, it's so interesting to me that other people don't have to go through the brokenness that I went through to get to this point of grace. But I'm so glad that I did so that I can relate to the people that do. She is understanding redemptive grace. It's amazing. So how can we be different? For some of us here today, it might be that we need to take a fresh look at our past. There are things that have happened in our past, our own brokenness, the brokenness of others, families of origin that were difficult, dysfunctional. And those things Jesus wants to heal, not just erase, but heal. I encourage you, on Wednesday nights, Dr. Richard Shaw is leading us through a series called Shame No More. And this is all about understanding the shame cycles in our life and coming to a point where we can implement grace into our daily relationships with others. It's profound. I encourage you to come. 
For some of you, there might be a, a counselor that, that you need to see to start talking about some of these things. Or you can make contact with a pastor on staff and we'd be glad to help you as you begin discovering how to be healed from the brokenness of your past. For some of you, you might be in a blended family situation. Stepmom, stepdad, second, third marriage. And you feel this deep sense of shame in the Christian community. You feel that you are a second-class citizen. And you feel like you don't have a right for help. You don't have a right to get through. You just got to grit it out. And it's complicated being in a blended family. We here at Evergreen have a blended families ministry. In other words, we're saying we want to help. We want to affirm that Jesus is doing new things in you. We want to be helpful along the way in that. It's a great ongoing ministry, and there's a seminar, March 12th and 13th, that I encourage you to sign up for if you are in a blended family. I give you tools and professional insight and help on working through the blended family situation. And some of you this morning, you're in real legal trouble before God. I told you the story when I was five years old. I deserved the visit from the police department. I was in trouble. One day, each of us will stand before God, the righteous and perfect judge, and will be judged for our actions. And all of us are guilty. All of us deserve punishment and hell forever. And there's only one way out. And that's Jesus and putting our trust and our faith in him. For some of you, that's your step today. So would you bow your head, close your eyes with me? If that's you today, and God is calling you to take a step of faith towards him to receive the forgiveness that he offers, would you go ahead and look up at me, make eye contact with me? I'm starting by looking at the left-hand side of the room. Yeah, is that why you're looking at me? Yeah. God loves you. He's got hope for you forgiveness, grace. It's wonderful. Looking at the left-hand middle section. Young man, yeah. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you guys. God loves you. He cares so much for you guys. I'm looking at the right-hand middle section. Is that where you're looking at me? Yeah. There's so much love for you. You are the only person in the world. He would embrace you, love you. He's doing a new thing in you and your family. Sir, is that why you're looking at me? Yeah, I want to acknowledge that. We've got several people in here saying, yeah, I want to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. So let's do, let's do this. Would you guys all, everybody in here, Repeat after me as we pray a simple prayer of faith. Jesus, I've messed things up on my own. I need forgiveness. I trust what you did on the cross, dying for me, that I might have life. I ask you would clean me from the inside out. I trust that you will. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, can we celebrate with several people who are saying, yeah. Imagine if with me for a moment. It's 10 or 15 years from now, some of the estimates are saying Hillsborough will be 200,000 people. Currently 90,000. We are strategically located to be a center of healing and a center of grace extended to this community and beyond. Imagine the harvest that we will reap together as we continue to trust redemptive grace. God taking everything that we are and building it into something beautiful. Imagine a children's ministry when when children from broken families, dysfunctional families, they come in here and as soon as they're in this building, they know that they're loved, that they're important. That's amazing. Imagine a youth ministry that continues to reach into the community, drawing all who may come. Not just the well-to-do, not just the put-together, not just the nice kids, but welcoming all kids who don't know how to behave, who don't know Jesus, so that they can be loved, accepted, and forgiven. Imagine what God will do through us as we continue to trust Him. Imagine what God will do as we look to Him and receive this wonderful, undeserved gift of redemptive grace. Pretty excited.